explore stories, journeys, opinions, and philosophies within the field of family medicine and primary care. And now, the host of the show, Ross Tannick. Yes, I'm excited to be bringing you all the Family Medicine Podcast. Right now, I'm recording this intro from my beloved Truth Be Told Studios here in Parker, Colorado. And I'm really pumped about this podcast because it'll hopefully let me have interesting discussions with interesting doctors doing interesting things. The plan is to feature interviews with primary care physicians working in different environments with different focuses. Hmm. Is the plural for focus foci? They have different foci. That sounds weird, but let's look it up later. Anyway, I hope to explore physicians' journeys, their interests, and attempt to answer the question, why is primary care important? That's basically the mission statement we have going here. And I bet we end up with a whole bunch of different answers. So for this interview, I didn't have to go far. It was conducted with a professor at my institution of Rocky Vista University, Dr. Jean Bouquet. But in the future, I hope to broaden the scope of the podcast and interview family docs from all over the Denver metro area, maybe even record some phone interviews with physicians all over the state or all over the country. So if you know any family docs with unique perspectives or philosophies on their craft or the industry as a whole don't be shy to send them my way please thank you so let's do a little intro to the interview here dr bouquet is a family physician about 15 years ago he got into pain management uh, on top of his uh, family practice and uh, he ran his own practice up until recently and Currently, he is an assistant professor of family medicine in the Department of Primary Care Medicine at Rocky Vista University. And in this interview, he talks about his love of painting, teaching, why he enjoys being a a family med practitioner. And he wasn't afraid to talk about the downsides of the industry either, at least as they are right now. But he also has some ideas for solutions to the problems that he lays out. He discusses uh, a really interesting case with me that he had a while back that uh, I guess I'll just um, let him talk about. And you know what, on podcasts, they often do this uh, really thorough intro on their guest. And uh, I thought I'd try one here on this pilot episode. But really, I just want to get to the good stuff. So uh, how about this? No more rambling by me. Here is my interview with Dr. John Bouquet. All right, welcome everybody to the Family Medicine Podcast. I'm here with Dr. Bouquet in his office in Pod B, Rocky Vista University, uh, Colorado campus. And uh, he's here to talk to me about his experience in family medicine. So Dr. Bouquet, how are you today? Good. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. I'm excited to uh, do this maiden voyage with you, and I guess we can jump right into it. Um, Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your background, maybe uh, 
childhood upbringing undergrad experience you know going through med school residency any anything you like perfect perfect so uh, my dad was in the Air Force born down at the Air Force Academy and um, moved to Maryland just outside of DC Rockville Maryland where I grew up then I went to undergrad in Boulder Colorado and uh, developed a little bit of a liberal bent and uh, which has served me well and then went to medical school in Kirksville and did my training there and then came out here to Colorado about 22 years ago and at that point I worked in Elizabeth which is a small town east of uh, east of Denver and the last 15 years I've been in practice uh, solo practice my own clinic bouquet family medicine and uh, just joined the faculty here at Rocky Vista about a year ago and really love teaching. I've been precepting uh, students for 28 years and this is uh, one of my great joys in life. So did you know you were always interested in family medicine or was that something that you came to later in life or later in your training? Uh, no, I had no idea I was going to end up in family medicine. I, um, I, I'm an artist, too, and I, so I do some paintings and, and that sort of thing. Uh, yeah, I think you've shown us one of your paintings. <laughs> the, or I, I these are two, two on the wall right here. And uh, Beautiful. I, I do watercolors now. So I've always liked doing things with my hands. Uh, I know you're a guitar player, so you appreciate... Um, manual dexterity and so all the surgical rotations that I did I really liked I mean they uh, they kind of spoke to me and then so I was sitting out for an orthopedic uh, residency I'd been offered an orthopedic residency which was coveted at the time I think still is um, and uh, it fell through and then I happened into family practice and I was so glad afterwards that I did it uh, the lifestyle is more suited for me and my personality. I, uh, I just uh, like the balance of home life and uh, uh, practicing medicine. Uh, orthopedics uh, tends to be pretty labor intensive as, as you can imagine. And uh, there's uh, a lot of long hours, a lot of late nights on call. And you didn't find that in family medicine or just to a lesser extent? To a lesser extent, um, the last 15 years in my private practice, I've had an answering service, which has, uh, man, they're, they're uh, worth their weight in gold because mm -hmm. they would screen the calls. And uh, so I'd get a couple calls uh, during the week and maybe a couple calls on the weekend. Uh, but generally, it was something that we could handle over the phone, or if it was truly an emergency or urgency, uh, then we'd send them to the emergency room. Right. Yeah. I know that's a big topic in people's minds, or at least uh, medical students' minds, is work-life balance and thinking about the lifestyle of whatever uh, specialty they want to be in. Um, in family medicine, one part of me wants to believe that, oh, there's less late nights or on-call shifts, uh, you know, throughout the night. But on the, at the, uh, I guess the other hand is uh, telling me that, you know, there's a lot of work you take home with you. So can you talk about kind of the work-life balance or the, yeah. the lifestyle of family medicine? 
I, I, I think one of the things that I've seen in 28 years of practice is um, the advent of electronic medical records, which I fought tooth and nail, and I actually never adopted. Mm -hmm. And so I was old school charting, and I think it is uh, a hindrance for family practitioners. I think EMRs are a hindrance for family practitioners. And it is um, kind of a stain on the medical profession at this point because, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, a lot of my friends who work at Kaiser or whatever, <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. uh, tend to um, sp uh, take their work home. And so when their day is done and they've seen 20, 30 patients, they still have two hours of documentation either on the weekends or whatever. And I think that is directly related to these EMRs and uh, the um, uh, the old saying that, well, the new saying is that it's, uh, we're, we're data entry clerks now. And right. so, uh, and I, I don't like that part of medicine, um, but there is, is that with family practices that they're, I, I'm hoping, uh, I have a couple ideas on that. Uh, you and I have talked before about uh, direct patient care where mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of old school and you still have to document but um, one of the things to get around these EMRs which are here to stay is the, this voice recognition software mm -hmm. that uh, you know like a dragon speak or something like that you can uh, dictate into a dictaphone or come right back to your computer and dictate into it and it transcribes your note for you and it's um, really quite good I think yeah that does sound like an amazing tool. Um, just right off the bat, I wonder how many typos or you know missed uh, medical terminology is going to be in there. It, it's a it's a work in progress, and uh, Dragonspeak has a, actually a medical software uh, program that um, the more you train it, obviously the okay. better it gets. It's kind of artificial intelligence, yeah. and, but Smarter you can than we see, give it yeah, for. you can see some. Pretty wild um, verbiage from uh, some of these ER doctors who obviously didn't edit their work. Um, right. But I, I think ultimately, um, you know, another thing that we're seeing is scribes in in the office, and right. I and I I'm, I honestly, uh, for me personally, I don't see that there's a place in a family practitioner's office for a scribe. It, I think it takes away from the anonymity of uh, the visit, it takes away a little bit from the trust and the just personal attention you're trying the to give your- patient relationship, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's tough. So I'm not sure scribes are the answer, but um, no, I, I um, if you ask any family practitioner, I think they're, uh, the bane of their existence is now uh, the amount of uh, documentation, paperwork right. that they have to do. And it used to be when I first got in practice 28 years ago, um, maybe my documentation, other than seeing patients, was about two hours a day. Now, clearly takes a, about four or five. So about mm. uh, half of my day is spent entering data. That's incredible. It's, it's de depressing, I mean, yeah. because that's not what we get into medicine no. for, really. Right. Yeah. So... You know, I guess the I, the idea is that most people 
who are against the idea of the EMR say it's it's not for patient care or patient records. It's more set up for billing and insurance and I guess legality sort of stuff, True. rather than helping the practitioner have a, a uh, you know, cogent medical record of the patient visit. Absolutely true. I think that um, legally it's um, fairly, uh, uh, you know, thorough um, record of, <clears throat> excuse me, of uh, the encounter, but um, it can trip you up. For example, if you auto-populate a positive review of systems, and I know of cases of this where the ER doctor accidentally populated everything as positive in the review of systems. And so he was later sued because he didn't edit that, and it looked like, well, doctor, why did you not uh, address the shortness of breath, the chest pain, mm -hmm. the dizziness, and that sort of thing? And so there are mistakes that can be made with EMRs. The second part of that is that with EMRs uh, for billing purposes, um, you can actually commit um, fraud because you are uh, upcoding and perhaps you didn't do the exam or perhaps you didn't ask that question. If you and just checked the wrong box. If you checked the wrong box and it says, hey, did I ask? Violation of the law. Exactly. And so you're, uh, yeah. you're saying that you asked a patient um, about... Uh, this part of their history and uh, you actually didn't and in my mind that's fraud and back to the dictation with dragon speak I mean it, what you dictate is I mean you can't make that stuff up on the fly and so you, you dictate into a dictaphone and, and that's exactly what happened in the encounter yeah and this was less of a problem when you're just you know documenting yes. short yes. or longhand I should say I mean admittedly the notes were like a half a page, uh, but the next doctor that viewed that note knew exactly what you were thinking, knew exactly what you treated them with. Mm -hmm. Most of the notes that I see from EMRs are now four or five pages long. They've got a lot of fluff in them, and you have to kind of weed through them to find out what the actual diagnosis is, what the doctor's thoughts were, and what the treatment was. So they're not handy for handoffs you know they, right yeah yeah there's too much to weed through is what right you're saying. Yeah. exactly yeah well dragon speak just the name of it alone sounds pretty cool but also <laughs> the concept uh i i'm i could get on board with that yeah I, yeah i like talking into a, a computer and having it do all the work for me yeah yep. um so other than kind of documentation um stuff that we're just talking about right now do you see any other changes in the next 5, 10, 20 years in family medicine? Um, you know, that's my one complaint, and I think you'll find that that's the biggest complaint is these EMRs, particularly mm -hmm. in primary care, don't translate real well. And uh, because we are dealing with probably on a daily basis, you know, um, up to... 150 different diagnoses that we have to entertain, whereas a GI doctor, specialist in uh, gastroenterology, may be having five to six uh, disease states that they have templates for. Mm -hmm. I don't think the EMRs are ready for prime time for primary care because of the diversity of the cases that we see. Right now, 
uh, if we could give you guys back time with your patience, that's that's the whole thing. And I hope that you know we work on that. And things like uh, voice recognition software will be the answer to that. The other thing is. Um, in primary care, I think we're going to have to um, expand our scope of practice and not be relegated to coughs, colds, and sore holes, as they say. Okay. Cough, colds, and sore holes is kind of the bread and butter of family practice. These are really easy things that uh, can be taken care of. We want to be challenged in our day-to-day mm-hmm. -day operations. And um, I, I think that uh, a lot of doctors get out into a system like Kaiser, and I don't mean to pick on Kaiser, but mm -hmm. um, we tend to just see cough, colds, and sore holes. We want to be challenged. We want to go home at night and say, oh, that was a really challenging case. We really helped this patient. Um, but in 2020, we're going to be about 90,000 primary care physicians short in this country. That's insane. And so what... By 2020? 2020, we're, oh we're 90,000 short uh, in terms of uh, raw numbers uh, covering um, patients throughout America. And so some of the providers that are filling the gaps are like uh, physicians, assistants, and nurse practitioners. Um, and they're quite capable... Um, but I, I think that um, for the more difficult, uh, challenging cases, I, I would argue that we're better trained and that uh, we, we should be the ones uh, seeing those cases. Um, and so I, I would like to have uh, the residency program, um, you know, really emphasize that you can go outside of your normal cough, colds, and sore holes and if you like sports medicine, um, take a special interest or a year fellowship in sports medicine, or uh, do what I did in my practice, which is I, uh, by uh, necessity, I learned to treat people with pain, and I really enjoyed it, and so I did that for about 15 years. And conversely, after the opioid epidemic came, I uh, had to treat people with addiction as well. Um, and so I really liked addiction medicine, and we've uh, helped about 500,000, uh, 500, 500 people um, with uh, addiction uh, over the last 15 years. And so that feels really good as a, a family practitioner. But uh, no, you're, the world is your oyster in family practice. You can go, if you like doing uh, endoscopy, uh, you can train to do that sure. and get enough uh, cases where you can get privileges at, at a uh, hospital. If you like delivering babies, you can do that as well. I mean, it's it's up to you. But I, I think it would be pretty boring for most um, students out there to think that for the next 40 years they're going to be doing cough, colds, and sore holes. Right. I actually wanted to ask you about that. Kind of what percentage of your family practice, but maybe before you got into addiction medicine and pain med, uh, pain medicine, um, what percentage were just those simple cases, cough, colds, sore holes? So, so I had um, a nurse practitioner and I had a uh, PA at uh, various times and they took the bulk of those cases. But after they left in the last five years, I was on my own. Um, 
I would see about maybe 10%, 15% of my practice because I had been pretty involved with pain management okay. and, um, and addiction medicine, which made up about 50% of my practice. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's interesting as you get further in practice, the uh, patients age with you. And so right. um, as you grow older, they get older and they have more problems. And sure. so all of a sudden we're dealing with, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. um, the, um, the aging population, we s- start seeing diabetes and its sequela. Uh, we see um, congestive heart failure, hypertension, strokes, um, heart attacks. And so it's, um, it is challenging. Uh, it's good medicine, but it's... Uh, so uh, last year, towards the end of my practice, I saw very little like acute care... Uh, I still saw some, um, you know, kids and gave vaccines and that sort of thing. But I think that uh, your practice mirrors your age. Mm -hmm. And so as you get older, they kind of are all the same age. (laughs) That's interesting. That makes perfect sense. But something I never really thought about before. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in, in kind of thinking about those cases that are seemingly simple, but then there's you know, maybe several comorbidities, um, and they turn into a, a real complex case that's hard to find a diagnosis or a treatment plan. Um, can you think of any time or story or patient uh, presentation that was a really difficult case that maybe started as simple, but was, <coughs> uh, you know, uh, something that you, it was very difficult, or maybe you never even sussed it out as to what was going on with the patient? Yeah, I, I can think of this uh, distinctly because it was um, it, it was a, a real head scratcher. Okay, so this guy comes in. I'd known him for 15 years, and he had deja vu. And after the fact, I found out that 65% of people experience deja vu, you know, that sensation like, I've been here before, I've experienced this, and it's just you're kind of tired or sleep-deprived, and so you're... Uh, brain is just not registering. It's maybe a nanosec too, too late, and sure. so you already have that memory preserved in right. your frontal cortex. Yeah, it's a strange feeling. Yeah, it is very strange. And uh, so he comes in and said, "Oh," and I said, and "He was pretty stressed, and he had been sleep deprived." And I said, "Okay, so um, it sounds like you know this is pretty common. I've experienced this too. I want you to work on your sleep and." Um, I offered him Ambi, and he said, no, that's okay. I'm going to try some melatonin. I said, okay, but I want to see you back in two weeks and see how things are going. So he didn't come back, and then the next time I saw him was about four months later, and he comes in with his wife. And we're talking just kind of superficially, and he's making sense. And then all of a sudden, he brings out his cell phone, and he calls it his church. And Uh-oh. I and no I and because he's in IT I thought oh you know right. I think he was making a joke sure. like this is his church this is his religion this is my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah and so then he made a couple other um, you know uh, apraxic uh, comments and and just uh, 
name things wrong, you know, and yeah, and uh, out of an Oliver Sacks book or something. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, so I I looked over at his wife and and she just kind of rolled her eyes. And I said, uh, okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to do some blood work on you. And we did, you know, just check the requisite mm-hmm. metabolic stuff. But I'm going to send you over for an MRI. I just want to make sure that everything's okay with the brain. The MRI showed um, a huge tumor in his left uh, temporal lobe, which was affecting his um, uh, Wernicke's area. And so he had expressive aphasia. Um, and uh, and he had, um, you know, he, he could express himself okay, but he, the word choices were... <laughs> All over uh, the place. Wasn't, yeah. It wasn't fluent, and yeah. it was um, definitely uh, choosing the wrong word. So he had a left temporal lobe tumor that was about six centimeters, which, uh, you know, it's bigger, than, and it was kind of oblong, so uh, maybe like pear-shaped or mm. pear-sized. So I got on the phone with his wife because I didn't know how much comprehension he had, and I said, listen, you got to go to the emergency room. I'll call in a report, but we're going to admit you. Yeah. I said, this looks uh, like a possible uh, uh, brain tumor, you know, and so he had it resected, but unfortunately it was a glioblastoma, which uh, has about a 15-month survival. Uh, right. We're getting better with it. I uh, I kind of lost him to follow up, and I never found out what happened. Um, there were... Um, some inferences that I had missed or failed to diagnose him based on his presenting complaint of um, a deja vu. Mm -hmm. And so I talked to my neurosurgeon friend who had operated on him. And he goes, John, we can't do an MRI on every patient that has deja vu. You'd be doing it on 200 million people in the United States. And so he made me feel better about that. But that was a case where the presenting complaint was, uh, and as it turned out, upon further review, um, sometimes the first complaint with a glioblastoma is deja vu. So, um, yeah. So that that. was a great learning experience for me. But, um, you know, we we do everything right. We tell them to follow up with us. And I I suppose that's another complaint that family practitioners have. And you'll probably get this in other podcasts is that um, we tell them what to do. We give them specific instructions. And it's frustrating because oftentimes they won't follow the instructions. Right. Was there something in the blood work that... uh, was diagnostic? Absolutely not. Everything was normal. Wow. Yeah. So what led you to getting the MRI on him? Um, oh, it was just the... Yeah, the, just the, the expressive aphasia and the right. fluency, but a word... Uh, word Confabulation, yeah. 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 yeah, wow. And so that was relatively quick onset? Because I know he had the yeah. deja vu. came back a couple of weeks later, you said? No, he, he followed up four months later. Yeah, four I think months. in... Two weeks later, we would have pursued it had he, um, you know, had we ferreted out, the, you know, the kind of uh, word searching type thing. and Not word searching, but a confabulation of, of words. Yeah, wow. Well, I, uh, interesting case, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I also wanted to ask uh, a little bit about preventive medicine, something I'm 
interested in and getting more and more interested in as uh, I go along with my education here. Um, but how does that come into play in, in a family medicine practice? And you know, maybe you can talk specifically about your practice. Yeah. So I, th I think um, family practitioners are uniquely qualified to take care of every uh, aspect of a patient's health, including uh, preventive medicine. And I think that's uh, by virtue of the fact that we become you know, for lack of a better word, we become friendly with our patients. We, we, they learn to trust us. I mean, it's like a mechanic that you are friendly with and mm -hmm. you learn to trust them just with time. Yeah. Um, our patients trust us because they see us time and time again. We've got their history, all of their history, their social history, their psychological history up in our head or in the chart. And they are comfortable seeing the same face and seeing the same person. And because of that, they actually, the compliance goes up when you get to give them some advice. And, it, and it's more like a, I was never heavy handed. You know, if, if somebody was an anti-vaxxer, we'd sit down and they, I say, okay, present what you have and let's, let's talk about this. Um, some doctors are more draconian and they say, okay, if you're not going to, vaccinate your kid you can't be a patient in my clinic and that's their right I mean they, they can do that but mm -hmm. um, I always think that an educated population is a compliant population right. so um, part of the word that you know some of the students uh, hear the word doctor and it actually comes from the uh, Latin f docere docere so like DOC doctor mm -hmm. uh, document. It's a uh, it's it's imparting knowledge upon somebody, and so we're ultimately teachers right. as physicians or doctors. Um, so that's part of uh, what I really like about medicine is the ability to teach, and not just teaching students, but teaching my patients. And, but you have to get there through trust and just listening to them and developing a good relationship with them. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of what attracts me to the field of family medicine is maybe, it's, maybe I'm uh, delusional in that I think I will have more time with the patient and more interaction. Um, you know, maybe not every family practitioner feels like they have that time to do that but um, it's definitely something that attracts me and and I think uh, for the listeners for the students out there that are contemplating family practice this is I'm not a big preachy guy or uh, but th the advice I would give you is don't do what I did which was see a number on a contract for my first job and say that's more money than I've ever seen in my life mm -hmm. and that's more money than my dad makes and so I'm going to sign on the dotted line. What my big advice is is to really vet the practice, um, you know, really investigate the practice, see what type of practice they have, call up uh, the staff, uh, you know, spend a half a day. Uh, a lot of these uh, practices are, it's a, like a con contingency practice where you work for like six months and see if it's a good fit for both of you, oh, which is really cool. But um, like I said, you don't want to be relegated to eight hours of cough, cold, sore holes, and then four hours of work when you get home. 
right. documenting what you just saw all day. I mean, that's, well, uh, not for me. Right. <laughs> right. So is there anything that you know now about family medicine or about uh, addiction medicine um, that you wish you knew before medical school or maybe before residency? Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly wish that in medical school, the first two years, we'd had s even a bit of uh, pain management. We had none. Mm -hmm. I asked a second-year student from RVU if they'd had any, uh, and they said they had about two hours of lectures throughout the last two years. Uh, addiction medicine, zero, <laughs> right. zero hours, and I and I think that that's uh, a shame. And so, um, eight to ten percent of the human population is thought to have um that addictive gene that uh manifests with addiction or substance abuse and so it's a big part of humanity and it uh we we need to know something about it again we, the knowledge uh provides you with some power to maybe shape your patient's future and help them out i mean again addiction medicine if you get them on the right medication you get the right counseling and avoid certain lifestyles and behaviors, uh, you can turn these people's lives around, you can prevent legal actions and that sort of thing. So I wish I'd gotten more pain management and addiction uh, medicine uh, training. That's a great answer. I, uh, I also uh, think that we, or at least me personally, I haven't gotten much along that line, but I know you've given uh, a couple of lectures even in your short time here uh, on the topic, so it sounds like you're kind of paying it forward a little bit. Well, I'm passionate about it, yeah. Um, okay, well, that uh, is great because I love to kind of end uh, a little bit with uh, some advice for people who are looking to, you know, decide on uh, how their, their career path is going to be. Um, I guess my last question for you is kind of the most general of all of them is, is why is primary care, maybe not just family medicine, we could talk about uh, internal med or mm -hmm. pediatrics, why is it an important endeavor for a physician or just for patients in general? And I've had, uh, I've converted a couple students from orthopedics uh, into uh, family medicine, just because my concept when I was going through medical school 30 plus years ago was that um, real doctors can treat just about every ailment. And then, so I hearken back to the Marcus Welby days, as cliche as, as that is. And, you know, I, I just want, I'm a generalist in my, in my thinking. And so as a generalist, I want to know a little bit about everything, and I want to at least have the knowledge again to be able to say, ooh, this is beyond my scope. I'm going to refer this out. Mm -hmm. But uh, truly, family practice is the, the term cradle to grave, and right. uh, uh, so we see little ones, and we see people um, actively dying, and uh, we need to know as physicians first be a physician, you know, and then if you like to specialize and go off and, um, you know, and you really have a passion about neurology or how the brain works, 
so be it. You know, for me, I was always a generalist, and I said, oh, man, I really want to know about that. To this day, I, I still am. You know, I read Discover Magazine, Scientific uh, American, and all those because I, I'm just fascinated about science and, that, and learning. Um, but I think that if you're like me and you're a generalist and you like, um, you know, getting a relationship with a patient that's more than just a couple visits and you like detective work and trying to figure things out that are uh, strange, like a brain tumor that presents with deja vu. Um, And if if I had caught that, I mean, I I eventually did catch it, but if I had done it, you know, on the first go round, I would have been really satisfied. But nonetheless, this is uh, a really cool life. I mean, you go home at night and you say, oh yeah, I helped this person or I helped this person get off of heroin or help this person with chronic pain or uh, whatever it is. I vaccinated this child and now we're gonna prevent this uh, measles epidemic that's, uh, that's occurring across the United States. So um, no, I, I love family practice. Gotta end it there. Sure, that's, <laughs> that's great. Well, I thank you so much for uh, letting me interview you and um, uh, giving so many, uh, I guess, stories of your, your practice and your background and uh, some good advice for the young ones out there still deciding which way to go. Thanks very much. All right. Well, that was super fun for me. I got to hang with Dr. B and talk to him about his thoughts on family medicine, where the industry might be going, hear a little bit about him almost being an orthopedist. I really enjoy hearing about people's backgrounds and their upbringings and their journeys, but you may not. You may want more of kind of a case presentation, which Dr. Bouquet did for us as well. So give me your feedback. Let me know what you liked and what you didn't like. Well, before we wrap it up here, I want to extend a huge thank you to Joe, my AV guy at Rocky Vista, and he put in a lot of work to help me make this happen. So thank you, Joe. Thank you, Dr. Bouquet, for being a great sport and a great interview, as well as a great professor. I really appreciate you uh, being on the first episode with me. And I want to thank everybody listening. This really wouldn't be much without you. I would be talking into a microphone in uh, my apartment. So thank you for listening so much. And thank you for subscribing to the podcast perhaps liking the podcast, not even sure if that's possible for you to do, but give it a shot. It can't hurt. And I want to thank the very handsome gentleman, the Delicious Dishes, for lending us this sweet theme music, which is going to play us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one. That just add a little pizzazz, you know what I'm saying? Thanks for listening to the Family Medicine Podcast. Remember to subscribe, was the universe and it bloomed and birthed the moon and the earth nothing ever happened till it was observed by the first animals with optic nerves it was a fight for survival 
Many died though, friends were formed to fight mutual rivals Man and woman appeared and they realized there was a thing called love Bringing joy into their lives, boom, they were civilized Went from stones and bones to phones and drones As many kings took the throne Built empires and the story's well known History ticks along like a metronome And then I came to be, learned to walk, talk, and throw stuff All grown up, I got a job now and showing up I'm sleep deprived, I'm misaligned my appetite is primed to feed the ego almost all the time And then I met you, lovely and smooth You quickly removed my modern man's blues I wanna celebrate every breath that I take Cause I'm afraid I'm dreaming and I don't wanna wait So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know The universe was my universe but I left to pursue the search of love But sometimes it hurt along the way If there's anything I've learned Create a garden Plant flowers in the dirt I'm gonna be the sunshine and rain Protect you from the pain As I push you toward the flames Play the game and wonder Am I the hunted or the hunter? When I was younger I met God and I hugged her She said, hey baby Instead of getting lost within How about you try to walk a mile in my moccasin Stop, begin Let the thoughts and visions Guide you further down the road Going inch by inch Don't sprint it slow, protect your soul, travel long and far, but make sure to come home, cause the love that's here is what keeps you going, and gives you the power and the freedom to grow, let's giggle and laugh and rise up through the stress, this life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best, when life gets complex, don't think, just do it first, it was simpler when the uterus was so baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know, baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul And forever gonna grow into something we don't know The uterus was my universe The uterus was my universe The uterus was my universe And then I met you the uterus was my universe. Shine and rain. The uterus was my walk universe. a mile in my moccasin. The uterus was my universe. Keeps you going. The uterus was my universe. Make sure to come home. The uterus was my universe. And then I met you. The uterus was my universe. This life is crazy, but it's the goddamn best. When the uterus was my universe. So baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna Grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know. Baby, let me grab a hold of your body, mind, and soul, and forever gonna grow into something we don't know.